Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Asaf Wand, the CEO and co-founder of Fifth Wall Portfolio Company and digital insurance provider, Hippo. Asaf shares his journey as an entrepreneur in the insurance industry and Hippo's approach to shifting the mindset of the home insurance process from being reactive to proactive. We also delve into Hippo's partnership with Fifth Wall Limited Partner and home construction company, Lennar. Enjoy the conversation. All right, so Asaf, thank you for joining. Uh, Where are you coming in from? I am uh, the only employee in the Palo Alto office. So I have a 15,000 square foot for myself. And somehow, even in that, find myself in a, in a side conference room. <laughs> <laughs> I like the background. It's very, it's very bland. I have another kind of like side in here. And then it has these two halo of lights. And I figure I'm just going to go to something which is more natural. Is that the same office that we met in, by the way? No, no. Luckily, we, we, we evolved from that. Okay. Uh, that office. It's, it's I think a different... it might be the same chair. I just recognize uh, the chair. This, this because I'm cheap. Yes. <laughs> nice. Um, well, I, I'd love to hear first, like, can you just tell people your background? Like, before Hippo, what were you doing? How did you get to the position of running Hippo? Sure. Uh, Israeli. You hear by my crappy accent that I can't get rid of. I'm stuck with it. Uh, like every guy in Israel, age of 18, went to the military, served for five years, was a captain in the Air Force, uh, then did the mandatory trip around the, the world that every Israeli uh, need to do. Age of 24, started basically studying law and finance. Did that while studying, because I was 25 at that point of time, uh, started working as a trader in an Israeli investment bank trading at night and studying law basically in the day. It was the heydays of the internet bubble. And I thought I should probably start an, uh, you know, an internet company. So I left the bank with a couple of friends and we started kind of like an employee stock option E-Trade. Uh, so did that for, for, for a while. Then joined uh, Intel Capital, the VC of Intel in Israel and did early stage investing in Israel, was the junior guy on the team. Did that for three and a half years, needed a break, went to University of Chicago to do my master's. Uh, so worked, so did that, worked, did the summer in McKinsey, went back to McKinsey afterwards uh, for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, and, and then realized I'm probably one of the worst employees in the world and the only route that I can have is start my own companies and started a random kind of uh, route of different uh, ventures. Telco, uh, physical good company, and uh, the natural progression to insurance. <laughs> Explain that. So, so basically, like, why insurance? Insurance doesn't seem like the, the next logical step. It's like a highly regulated, uh, old school, it just doesn't seem like a place where a really entrepreneurial person gravitates towards. So walk me through that. 
So, it's, it's, so let, let, let's address it in two things. I'm going to give you in a second, like the logical kind of reasons of why we started HIPPO. But I actually think that if I would have consulted a young entrepreneur now on areas to think, I would say, find something which is stale, massive, total available market. Regulation is an awesome thing if you are not afraid of it, because it's actually quantifiable risk, as opposed to, you know, you're in the business of venture, and many times people say, oh, we're gonna build this technology and stuff like that. It takes three X the money, two X the time. It's always hard. There is a market risk in here. We know that the market exists. It's a $100 billion market that goes at $5 billion a year. I can basically go to the best lawyer in the world or in the US and say, what does it entail to be an MGA in California? And he's gonna say, listen, it's gonna take six months and $175,000. And you know what? 95% of the time is gonna be correct. It might be five months and 160 or eight months and 200, but that's the ballpark. Well, in the model, it never works like that. But this is actually very quantifiable risk. Mm. Uh, or it will let me know up front, listen, there's zero chance that uh, the regulator would approve someone with zero you know, experience in insurance to do anything. So it's not worthwhile. So you can actually vet it out and, and get it out of the system from a risk standpoint very, very easily. And I think it's the right kind of approach for that. Now, insurance is a combination. My dad was in insurance for forever. So I had you know, I had to, to prove him uh, wrong that I can do something uh, in the space, which is what I told him for forever. Uh, but when I was working with McKinsey, I did quite a few projects with insurance companies and always thought they're not the most uh, well-operated businesses. It's a massive town. The component of legacy, uh, you know, in, in it is, is significant and they can't really move. Regulation... Like you must have a view on why that is. Like, why, why is it that way? Why have they been so slow to innovate and adopt technology? Uh, firstly, because they have this component called the book. So let's say you're Allstate. You have a $12 billion book of business, which is your current book of business. And now you're asking someone to innovate for something which is future going. And if you ask the CEO how much more business he can get, he's going to say, okay, $2 billion. So you're never going to risk the $12 billion book for the $2 billion potential. It's just a, it's a bad trade. Hence, you know, when you look at HIPPO, one of the things that we started is modernizing insurance. And has to do with the fact that instead of covering fur coats and pewter boards and China and silverware, mausoleums and crypts, we're going to cover home, you know, electronics and home office and things of that sort. Now, this realization, it's not groundbreaking. It's not that... You talk to a CEO of an insurance company, he doesn't know that he, co that he covers fair codes. It's just that he cannot do anything because if he files for a, a new rate, mandatory on the renewal, he has to have all of his book in the renewal basically quoted in the new rate. And then he doesn't know what's going to happen to the book. Let's say it's going to do better for some and worse for others. So let's, let, let's even put the number on this. Let's say my book is $10 billion. And I did a full analysis for two years to maximize the new rate to the, to the current book, by the way, not forward looking, because I'm trying not to lose them. So for 75% of them, I'm going to be slightly cheaper. Hence, it's better and I'm going to retain them for longer and stuff like that. So that's let's say 10% cheaper, they're staying. So in $7.5 billion, I just lost in one swoop $750 million in my premiums. And for the other $2.5 billion, 
for 50, 60%, you know, I'm going to increase the price and they're going to stay. But for the other ones, they might leave because I changed the price. So now I recalibrated something and I potentially lost a billion dollars in revenue on doing stuff. So everybody has a, a preference or not. Let's, let's not talk the boat and it's move like slowly. Structural, structural risk aversion, basically. Yes, yes. And so, and so when you looked at the industry, you were like, how can I do that better? What was the, what was the first insight? Uh, the first insight was very basic. Uh, it was, uh, there's more and more data. We can do some, some interesting things with data. We can plug in more data sources, uh, price probably more accurately. And in, in general, the, the, the thought was that we're going to enable people to actually buy online. So I'll actually take a step back. I'll walk you through the, the thought process that happened. So most of my ventures, and my, my startups start not from a need base, but from an analytical kind of uh, rigor kind of thought. I sit down and I read a lot of stuff. And in this thing, what, what really, really resonated with me was that the average age of an agent was 58. And there were less than half the agents that used to be before. And I'm sure that you're actually seeing it in dozens of other portfolio companies. What's the average age of uh, inspector and mortgage uh, broker? And you know, there's a bunch of roles that were I would say, uh, you know, the jobs that, 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 uh, that are the boomers basically did. This was the growth of middle America and middle uh, class people and suburbia. And these were the jobs that created. And now we're in a point where technology comes in and a lot and, and nobody actually wants to do it. When was the last time you heard that this and this became an agent? Which, by the way, 87% of newcomers to the profession are leaving the profession within less than three years because it just doesn't, you know, it's not that interesting. So again, average age was 58, less than 50% of the agents. Most of the agents are leaving the profession. The way that the new agent start his job was by selling home and auto and life insurance to friends and family and friends and friends and family. If these guys are non-existent or not coming and nobody wants to actually cater to them, then I thought that the simpler lines in insurance are gonna go direct. That was the, the, the realization. So we looked at the four lines. Auto is already direct. You have Geico and Progressive. We looked at home. We looked at uh, small, medium business. We looked at life. We thought I'm going to, you know, not going to go too much into uh, an in-depth analysis that we did. But we thought home is very much befitting our characteristics, a lot of data, and we like that kind of stuff. We started a company building the Geico for home insurance. That was basically how we started the company. And the good thing in entrepreneurship and, uh, is that you're kind of pot committed. If I knew now what I knew, you know, if I knew now back what, what I knew back, then, zero chance I would have started the company. Like zero chance. It's like, are you kidding me? It's crazy. But then you're, you're so committed, you have to sort it out. You don't know what you don't know. And right. you kind of go with it and you sort it out. And that's how you build IP and, and, and value to the company. But, but I remember one of the things you, you also told me at the outset was when you looked at, at home insurance, you were like, the, the, the policies themselves and what they actually insure is just like ludicrous. It's things that yes. no one would have, like, uh, I don't know. No, was, uh, yeah, I'm telling you, like, uh, pewter balls, China, silver, mausoleums and crypts, gold bullions, stamp collection, <laughs> physical bonds that your granddad maybe gave you. Uh, like, ridiculous stuff like that. But home office, electronics, strollers, camping equipment are not covered. So this was our realization that we need to... That was the second shift of the company, moving from being a direct insurer 
to modernize in homeowner insurance. And, and we didn't have a freaking clue what does it even mean? Because okay, let's just change the coverage. And then someone says, yes, but you need to file for it. Uh, okay, so let's file. You need to file. That's you fine. need to go to the department of, and by the way, there's 50 departments of insurance in the US. So you need to file in 50 different locations and each one has its own stories and its own nuances. And then we're like, okay, I guess that, that's what we're doing. So all of a sudden we became from just direct insurer to modernizing homeowner insurance. And now we're uh, in, the, in the third phase of the company, which is uh, basically shifting insurance from being reactive, which is, you know, you don't have any touch point with the insurance company. And only when you have, God forbid, a claim, you're going to talk to them to something that we call being proactive insurance company is how do we help mitigate a claim or preventing a claim from happening in the first place? And this is what we'll focus on. Having touch point with, you know, with Brandon as a customer all throughout the time that you are basically a policyholder. And we actually call you a customer and not a policyholder. And, and how much is today? Obviously, like people are putting so much into their homes and smart home technology, and you can capture so much functional data about the house. How, I guess one question is, how much does that actually impact your underwriting, but also your relationship with the customer? But also like, how much is that changing outcomes, right? And, and profitability, meaning you can use that data to actually better predict risk, right? Based on the behavior of how a family or an individual is using a house. So I, I think we're not there yet. I think it's, it's really beneficial to uh, nudge people to the right behavior, to have some prevention potential and less on the data side. Let me, let me give you some number uh, just so you get a sense. So one of the biggest problems that you have in homes now all across the US is something called inner water. So inner water, the, the amount of water leaks that you have all across the US is, is, is vast, it's massive. It's, one, it's, it's probably the highest in frequency in percentages of the losses and it's the second largest in severity after the total loss fire. It's really, if you have a, a real water loss in your home, it can easily be $25,000, $30,000. It's a severe kind of thing. So now there are two routes. Let's say it's 25% of the, of the losses is, is this component. Now I can give you a water shot valve potentially, which probably stops 90% of all of the, the, if there's a trickle of water at night, it stops it. If there's a surge of water in the day, it stops it. It, 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 allow, it alerts you, you can shut off the, the water shut valve. By putting this product in, we can probably prevent, I don't know, 80% of the losses of the water just by putting the actual stuff and preventing it. So that means that, you know, 20 out of the 25% we're basically stopping with that product. The rest of the nuances of the fact that uh, Brandon likes to take a shower at 7.30 p.m. and he's using 300 water gallons and, and Asaf is having, you know, showers in the morning and afternoon and I have my kids and all of that kind of stuff. It's interesting, but the correlation to find that, you know, yes, I have significantly more water damage than what you, what you have is not that high. And we're only talking about the extra, you know, 5% that is available there. And then what you're going to actually realize is that your house was built in 2015 and mine was in 1997. And you have, uh, I have copper and you have uh, corrugated iron and I have two stories and you have a thing. And you know what? The plumber that did the job in my home did a shoddy job in a corner. And then the amount of stuff that actually correlates a lot more to if, yeah, fine, over bazillions of time and stuff like that, I can find that stuff. 
but it's kind of boiling the ocean. And I prefer to focus on more specific things that are highly correlatory, like, you know, what's the age of the home? What's the material? How many stores, stores you have in the house and stuff like that. And, and it sounds like almost that's so intuitive, right? If you just put in like a single point of failure around a valve, that solves, it sounds like 80% of the water damage issues. What are the other things, like the other kinds of damage that happen that there's a very simple fix for? And I guess follow-up question is, why had no one done that before? Like installed those valves? Oh, it's, uh, A, it's still expensive. Let's start from the end. These are still expensive. And, and you know, and, and while insurance is a good business, it's not that profitable that I can fund and sustain all of that kind of stuff. So it's not that trivial. These valves cost probably three to four hundred dollars a piece. You need a good a good plumber to come and install it. That's another three hundred. You need to make sure that you have uh, an electric socket near it to to connect it. It needs to have a Wi-Fi. It it becomes it's not that trivial. This is one of the things that we're doing with Lenar. Every Lenar home is going to come with a shut valve because they can buy in bulk. We can help subsidize that. And you know it's a lot easier when you're building fifty thousand homes a year to make sure that this is how you build the house. And when the plumber comes, he connects it and it's waiting for them. But right. it's, it's, so it's a different kind of thing. Uh, so I think there, there was a lack of IoT device. There's a surge of, of hardware that is available, connectivity uh, capabilities and stuff like that. Uh, so that, that's a big part of that component. The second part is, uh, 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 is it beneficial for the customer as well? So fine, I, I close it and I stop. We file, and in all of the states that we file, a customer is entitled to a discount by having that because I want to share the value of the reduction in risk with my customer. So you need to file and get admitted on that in all of the, the, the states that we're live. Sorry, you, you have to file to pass savings along to the customer? Yes. There's also a question, how much saving? 4% or 20%? It's not that these water shut valve have been in business for 50 years and I know right. what the average. So you need to come up with a certain number and prove it. Then it's even worse because, for, because of regulation, it was perceived that if we're giving something, it's an inducement because there are laws against inducement because they didn't want uh, agent uh, A come to uh, Brandon and say, listen, I'm going to give you a small TV and please transfer your, your, your because then it's going to be a competition between uh, who's giving you more gifts. And we had to persuade the Department of Insurance that this is not an inducement. I'm giving you something that correlates to your risk and I'm reducing the price on your policy. I'm not giving, I'm not giving you something to steal you to get you a higher price. Right. But that was another lovely discussion. You have to have 50 times over, it sounds like. It, it usually, you know, you need the big guys and then the, the smaller guys usually uh, follow them. And, and one of the things you mentioned, Lenar, earlier, and I know that you as a company and you personally, you've thought a lot about just like partnerships and how to grow your business with strategic partnerships. And I think you've done that as well as any company we've seen in, you know, Fifth Wall's portfolio. Just walk me through philosophically, how did you think about partnerships? And then what have been some of the most successful partnerships around distribution? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. Firstly, uh, I think, you know, different founders have their own superpower. Uh, I think the, the, the area that I'm strong at is this partnership and business development. That, that's just an area that I gravitate automatically towards. That, that's something that, uh, that, that works for me. So I'm always like biased to that area. Second thing is, was the following thought. 
insurance is a product that has to do with trust. And the question is, you know, let's say we had a 1% conversion at the beginning. So, you know, the reason that we had, you know, a massive drop at the last of the, at the end of the funnel, when, when Brandon thought the price is right and I like the product and everything about it, that you stood in the last second before you put your credit card, like, yeah, but I don't know these guys. Right. And, and, and if you would have latched like, you know, Amazon or, or, or JP Morgan or whatever, then you probably our conversion would have been 50% because nobody actually, you know, at 10 p.m. going through a funnel of a home insurance uh, because it's the most fun thing to do. There's usually a very high intent when you're going through that funnel. Right. So, so the best way to basically elevate the trust is to ride a basically have the halo of another brand and to plug it in. That was the first kind of thought. If I'm going to be embedded in Chase's funnel of mortgage and you just took a mortgage from Chase, then, you know, then, then the customer will say, oh, Chase already vetted. They know what's going on. You know, well, it's part of a certain process. So that was the first kind of thought. The second thing is leverage distribution, which is, you know, uh, if I can get one point of contact to, to infuse it in a lot more uh, places, then, then, you know, then it's very beneficial. The thing is that, and you, and you know it better than, than most people, most of these business development deals do not really work. They're yes. just, they're, they're very promising. You usually do a fundraising on them. It's like you're on the promise that this one has millions of the, it very rarely works. You do 10 of these deals, usually at good times, two of them work. It's usually the two that nobody thought are going to work. It's, it's never, it's not a math kind of problem. That, so that's one. The second thing, in order to really have successful business development deals, you need that it's a win-win-win, that everybody leaves a bit of money on the table, but it's not, nobody's trying to maximize up to, you know, the 10th point after. And you need a true buy-in from the top. And I think on, the, on several of the partnerships that are doing very well for us, Comcast and Lenar and stuff like that, it's because at the end of the day, Stuart Miller, and Eric Feder, and John Jaffe, and Rick, you know, they are the ones that are actually committed. So if something which, you know, this is a foreign organization, uh, organs. So everybody in the organization will try to kick it out because it's changing the status quo and how you're doing business and it's a mess. So th there's a tendency in an organization, if you're coming from below, to always kick it out or it's gonna take seven years, that's why they don't succeed. Right. But it's a very different thing when Stuart Miller says, listen, this is a top priority. This is what we need to do. And the entire organization would open the doors and make it happen. And I think that's a big reason on why it's working. Plus, just a very strong relationship and trust and, and open dialogue with, uh, with the guys in Lenar, which works very well for us. And, you know, I think one of the reasons home builders are so interested in HIPAA, obviously, is digitizing an otherwise really painful, really analog process of buying home. And I guess, how did you see that? Like, as when you were looking at, you know, potential partners, you're obviously very aligned around customer experience. You want to create the best possible customer experience and the best possible customer journey through to buying your home insurance, just like the home builder is trying to create the most seamless experience, the most delightful experience to buy a home. How did you find those points of like alignment and congruency along the way? Yeah, 
So one of the interesting things is, you know, we started always the discussion with the one-click purchase, with the, the ability to have a streamline of an experience to basically put the customer who wants a home into the home. That's what, what started the, a lot of the discussion. And we customize our product and we have a dedicated product for home builders that doesn't look at your credit score and your past and your age and your past claims. So we can actually, you know, when you're entering a, a Toll Brothers community, someone can say uh, unit one is $73 a month, unit three it's 93 because it's already pre-quoted and set and we have from them all of the, you know, all of the, the features of the house, all of the data. But what, what it actually transformed to is that everybody that has to do with the experience of basically real estate is getting compensated and end the relationship in the point of, of giving you the house. Here's the keys, Brandon. That's it. The realtor is getting paid. The mortgage is getting paid. You know, the title is getting paid. Everybody getting paid. And then we don't hear about you anymore. What, some of the more interesting thing that we're seeing in real estate tech is the continuation of the relationship with the customer. One of the only things that transfer and move from the closing to the ongoing, uh, basically ownership is insurance. Mm -hmm. And this was something that once we realized that we started working with the partners a lot closely to like, okay, what else can we bring? What about warranty? What about, uh, you know, if you want to fix some stuff, what if you want to, we have a telemaintenance. We bought a company that what they do is you can call 24 seven and they're going to help you remotely now because it's COVID installed uh, a shelf. You have a, a small water leak. Maybe you want recommendation or potential plumber. We have networks of thousands because we have sadly some claims and we have hundreds of thousands of customers. So our aim is not to make money and, and basically monetize, but give that value to the customers. And this is something that builders want and, you know, cable company wants and uh, realtors want and anybody that has to do with a home purchase wants to continue the discussion with the customers and not just end it. And, and how do you think about that from like a brand equity standpoint to the customer, right? So, so customer buys home insurance, they move into their home. And as you said, it's this persistent relationship. How do you think, like, what are you trying to own in that customer's mind? So like if something yeah. goes wrong with my house, I call HIPAA or more, I sleep safer at night because HIPAA's got my back around insurance. Uh, what uh, is that branding you, you see? Yeah, so, so uh, I just finished a branding session this morning. I, I think the word, and I'm gonna, and my, my VP marketing is gonna freaking assassinate me afterwards. But what <laughs> I liked is, is something like, uh, we do home, you do life. And in my thought is, because we had this discussion Am I going to start offering you life insurance and auto insurance and, and pet insurance and stuff like that? Or are we moving uh, basically in the home? And we decided that we want to specialize in the home. And I'll give it to you for, you know, in, in a couple of, of things other than specialization, which is really, really important. If I'll ask you now, what's the difference between farmers and state farm and all state, et cetera, they're non-differentiated. You know the brands because they put a billion dollars in marketing. And this one has quarterback one, and this one has quarterback two, and this one have team, 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 and the other one, tam, tam, tam. That's what happens. But the product itself is the same product. It's non-differentiated. And I wanted to have, and by the way, if I ask you what are you insured with, it's probably going to be, I think, State Farm, maybe all state. Farmers, because you don't have a touch point with the, with the product, and it's right. not differentiated. So I want to be differentiated by being, that's the entire proactive. I think you also build a brand in general in life by having 
continuous positive touch point with a customer, not by just having one kind of transaction. You build bigger brands by constantly touching a customer. And insurance was such that you have a, a shoddy experience at day one purchasing, we fixed that. You have a crappy experience at year nine when you have a claim. We spent a ton of time improving the claim experience. And in between, everybody forgot on, uh, you know, of Brandon. And everybody in the renewal crossing their fingers and hope that you're gonna renew. I think that's a crappy experience. So we had the belief that the best experience is if we can, or the best alignment is if we can prevent losses from happening in the first place. And now comes, how do we start doing it? IoT device, we're letting you know, there's a water leak in there, the, the, you know, the door is not closed. It's also beneficial on loss ratio. We do underwriting instead of one time ongoing. We keep on underwriting your house. And Brandon, I see that you added a swimming pool. I think we should increase the liability insurance because the, the, the next door neighbor kid might jump in or you replace the roof because the permit record showed us and you're entitled to a 6% discount. And we bought this company that does uh, telemaintenance. And if you need help, call us. If you're locked out of the home, I want you to call 1-800 number, you know, what an other EPO. Maybe a locksmith will try and take care of your locksmith. If the, the fridge is broken, maybe we'll sell you warranty. Anything that has to do, I wanna be the people that take care of your home. And I want you to know, have a peace of mind. If God forbid some, something happened, send it to us and we'll help you take care of it. And, and I guess, how is that changing today? right? Where people are spending more times in their home, homes than ever before. They're using them more than ever before. The, the concept of office and home has been conflated and personal life and workplace life has been conflated. And now homes are, homes are literally like schools for your children. Uh, yeah. they, they're uh, you know, where you're getting your, you're not going to stores as much stuff is actually coming to you. You're working out of your home or multiple people are working out of your home. It's become your home gym. You know, like you don't go to a gym anymore. You work, you work out in your house. Because of all that more intensive use, does that change how people seem to be thinking about insuring their home or the, the kind of relationship they want to have with their insurance company? Curious if you see any early trends there. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I don't know if it, so what you saw initially, there were, even this COVID probably had four different phases. It's, it's like everybody were in the bunkers and not doing anything. Now everybody's buying homes because you realize after three months, that's the... I can't stay one more day. I need, as you say, an extra room for that, an extra room for that, or I need to change something. You see that furniture sale is through the roof as well. Uh, everybody has a certain DIY project or renovation. Try to get into, you know, a swimming pool, some a contractor to build a swimming pool. Yeah, I imagine pool. people are investing in their homes more than ever before, right? Because exactly. they're like, well, that needs fixing. I could add a pool there. So, so what you see, the first phase was cost. So everybody were looking to like, I don't know what's good, this COVID, I'm going to lose my job, I need to save money and I need to brace. That's why everybody bought food like crazy and stuff like that. And this was a massive shift for us of switchers at the beginning. So that was the first kind of shift where some of the channels of new homes uh, were, were declining. You know, the open doors, the Lenars, there was, then people actually weren't that panicky on, on cost saving, but the other channels went through the roof because now, you know, Look at refis, look at, uh, at home purchases and stuff like that. So there's been a shift even in, 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 you know, in volume. What we do see is that there is an increase in frequency of events because the homes are not set up for, as you said, 15 people living it in different kind of things, three showers, uh, cooking three meals every day, all, all of that kind of stuff. So there's a higher frequency, but usually slightly less severity. 
And because you stop, you stop the leak from happening because you notice it in five seconds. You're home, so you stop it. And breaking an entry is almost non-existent to begin with. It was, you know, it's a massive decline in the U.S., but it's it's almost non-existent. And so there's just a different calibration of where the losses are coming from and what's going on. I do think that this is going to be a really pivotal time on the changes of uh, our home is basically set up. There were several times, think about, you know, think about this thing. In the 50s and 60s, you used to have 3.2 bedrooms in the house for every bathroom. And then with time, we evolved uh, and, and we started having, you know, en suites and more bathrooms in the house, half bath and things of that sort. That was an evolution on how people uh, live their life. Kitchen used to be a utilitarian room. This used to be a, a, in the back of the house, closed, just for, this is where you make the meals and that's it. Every home now has an open kitchen, that's the center of the house, that's the, this, probably the room that you spend the most money on, the most time in. So there was this shift. Uh, and now we're gonna be in another, if you, you know, and this is a really interesting discussion to have with Lenar. How are they viewing the next features of a home? And all of a sudden you're gonna have okay, we might need to have two entrances because that's actually working very, very well because someone might have an office with an entrance versus where the home is. Maybe you need, uh, you know, gyms. Maybe you need, the, the, there's going to be a recalibration of what is the usage of a home and what's going on. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see in the next like 12 months what it's going to translate to. And I'm curious also, like, this is, you don't have to say whether the data actually says this and, and what you're saying. I'm more just curious on your view. Like you're seeing like questions that have kind of underpinned how migration patterns have worked in the last 50 years being completely compromised right now, which is this like trend towards urbanization, more people moving to cities. In some ways it feels like that's inflecting and people, a lot of the people I speak to seem to be wanting to get out of cities. And now part of that might be just expediency. You don't want to be in a city during, you know, a pandemic. But with the increase in, you know, virtual work environments, and frankly, the fact that we may not see each other for two years, and that's business nowadays. Um, do you think that like more uh, suburban and ex-urban areas are poised for growth, and that American home buyers are going to seek to live farther outside cities than they did, say, is recently as 2019? I think there's an overcorrection. And I think people always in a certain environment do a massive overcorrection. And then once this thing would transpire, there's gonna be a massive overcorrection to the other stuff. Let's think about a lot of the reasons for urbanization. They haven't changed. The fact that if you're a 25 year old, do you wanna live in Palo Alto or do you wanna live in San Francisco? Where can you have dating life and then more uh, fun experiences and stuff like that. That you know, the the reason for urbanization is still there. It's just that they took a lower priority versus you want space for the kids, you want to have outdoor space, you want to have you know, it, it it was deprioritized. I don't know if this this prioritization is consistent or not. Same goes, uh, and you know, we chatted briefly about that. I don't know if a lot of people would want to work remote or maybe they do want to work remote and our cooperation is going to be, this is, it's, it's very, very difficult at the heart of the pandemic to evaluate and, and do that because it can change really, really fast. The second there's going to be a vaccine and then people are going to realize that 
I'm Israeli, and I've been through several events of, you know, terrorist attacks and wars and stuff like that. And everybody always take a certain stance. And it's always amazing how resilient the, you know, human nature is and how fast it's coming back. To a different, yeah. So, you know, 9-11 happened. The, the entire thesis was nobody's ever going to fly. It's going to be very different. And then, you know, in six months, it's happened. 2008 happened. And we would have had a discussion about, listen, there was the, the entire real estate market is gone. It's ridiculous. It's And then you're looking at it, 2011, it happened uh, this. Stock market collapsed four months ago. Now it's in a, in a new record. I, I just, things are working and this is what's happening in the world. It's a lot more connected in the timeframes of what's happening. It's fluctuating way faster and a lot tighter. So, I, I'm looking at it fascinated from the side, examining it, but I, I, I can't take a, a, you know, a stance because I, I don't have enough conviction on that. So what's next for HIPAA? What, what are your big plans going forward? Uh, so we started with world domination and now we're going from there. Uh, <laughs> you know, and we're moving uh, it's, uh, it, it, it just, you know, the company has hit uh, a, a legit scale now. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of customers. Uh, it, it became, it, it, it's a, it became a lot more, it's not a startup anymore. It's more of a company right now. We acquired an insurance company recently uh, because we realized every time that we basically trust a third party to do something for us, there's a certain point where that in scale, third parties are usually not set up as a startup is to scale. And it, and it turns to break and then, you know, it becomes conflicted. So we bought that. So we, we basically set up the infrastructure for growth. So I'm very happy with that. With that being said, I, my aim is to keep on having growth initiatives going on. The partnership continuing, looking at more products to bring to the market, uh, solidifying the management team. We're still tiny. This is one of the things I love about insurance. Insurance is a hundred billion dollar market, home insurance in the US, yearly a hundred billion dollar and grows at $5 billion a year going to keep on growing, by the way, for forever. There's going to be more homes in the U.S. next year than this year. Labor and material co- keeps on going up. There's not enough labor, period, for the construction, uh, basically, uh, industry in the U.S. So it's going to keep on going up. We should just do more and better what we're doing now. And we're going to be a, a $5 billion carrier in, I don't know, five years. Once we reach that point, then we're going to start seeing, you know, where else do we want to focus on? In between, we need to test everything. So we're going to have the right conviction on where to spend money on a positive ROI when we want to do that. It sounds exciting. No, thanks for uh, betting on me early. Appreciate it. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks, Asad. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.